For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Well, this whole book of 2 Corinthians, um, Paul has been sort of on the defense. He's got people there that have been hurling accusations at him, saying that you're not fit, you're not a real apostle, um, you're, you're, you're nobody, and you guys should not follow Paul. And so he sort of reluctantly had to defend himself. And he's basically submitted to this extensive self-examination. And tonight, Paul comes down to the end of his defense of himself. That's been going for, for quite a bit of this book. And what he's going to say to the Corinthians is he's going to say, okay, I have examined myself. I've submitted to your exam here. And I've shown, I've exonerated myself. I've shown that I am the real deal, that I really am an apostle, that I'm out for your good. And... I'm done defending myself now in this book. But what he is going to say is, while we're, defend- while we're on the subject, maybe you guys need to examine yourselves. And maybe we need to take a little bit more of a look at what's going on. And so he's going to spend the rest of the book on that. So let's just go ahead. The first thing he's going to tell them here is, I've examined myself. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, 11, you've made me act like a fool. He did not remember how he said, I can't believe how foolish, I'm acting like a fool up here defending myself, defending my credentials. He says, you ought to be writing commendations for me. You guys should be the ones defending me. I shouldn't have to speak up on behalf of myself. You know me. For I am not at all inferior to these super apostles. Remember talking about those back in 2 Corinthians 11? These people who thought they were so much better than Paul. He had to sort of open their eyes to what these guys were really like. He had to point their attention to some things. Even though I'm nothing at all. Yeah, so Paul, you know, um, when Jesus, before he left, he appointed certain people as apostles. And he gave them special authority to teach the Bible. He gave them authority to write scripture. And there was just a small handful. Paul was one of the ones he gave apostolic authority to. We read in Acts chapter 9. And so Paul says, I am not inferior to any of these super apostles, even though I'm really nothing at all. So he sees on the one hand, God has given me this incredible role to play here. On the other hand, I'm the worst of all sinners. I'm nothing at all. I don't deserve this at all. This is not because I'm awesome. It's because God just picked me for this. And I, I don't even understand why. I didn't deserve it at all. And so Paul was picked as an apostle. And that was a very select group. This is why we're not having scripture written anymore. There's no handing down of apostolic authority to successive generations. It was a group authorized by God, empowered by his spirit, to write the New Testament, to do the initial proclamation of the gospel. And from them on, we're just reading their stuff. So we're still reading the, the writings of the apostles. Paul says, when I was with you, I certainly gave you proof that I'm an apostle. One of those proofs was I patiently did many signs and wonders and miracles among you. So this was one of the, um, one of the special things that, the, you know, Jesus, when he was here, he did, he did miracles to prove that he was really the son of God. And he told his, his disciples, he said, after I leave, you're going to do great things, even greater things than me. By the power of my Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what Paul showed himself doing. And this was one of the marks of an apostle. That these guys could do miracles. And he did plenty at Corinth. The only thing I failed to do. Which I do in the other churches. Was to become a financial burden to you. So he says. I am so sorry. Please forgive me for this wrong. That I didn't take money from you guys. Yeah at Corinth. From, a very, from the, the moment Paul got there. Somehow he knew. I can't take money from these people. And so God provided other ways through the job that he got as a tent maker, also through donations from other churches. But he did not take money, and he's glad he didn't because there were so many accusations coming at him. This was a very nice contrast between these, these, these other so-called apostles, these other so-called teachers, and Paul, is that Paul's like, I never took any of your money, and these guys have been taking all of your money. So who do you think is really out for your, for your good? You can see these guys are in it for the money. And Paul says, I'm clearly not. So he's like, sorry for not taking your money. Now, I'm coming to you for the third time. There was when he planted the church, and then there was another time since then. And I will not be a burden to you again, just like before. I don't want what you have. I want you, is what Paul says. And this is really, you know, the love of Paul for the Corinthians is really a reflection of the love of God for the Corinthians. You know, uh, God doesn't want your money or a bunch of rituals. He wants a relationship with you. And some of us have never been wanted. Uh, People have used us, and we've sort of learned that the only reason anybody would want anything to do with me is how they can use me. 
And when we come to the Bible, we learn that the love of God says no. God says, I want you. I want a relationship with you. And that's why I, I gave my son. He died on the cross for your sins because I love you and I want a relationship with you. And you're worth, I paid the greatest price for you. That's the love that God extends to you today, tonight. You can receive his love. You can receive his forgiveness and you can come into a relationship with him. And Paul says, that's the kind of love I modeled for you. After all, he says, children don't provide for their parents rather than parents provide for their children, at least in theory. Uh, it's a principle here he's appealing. He's like, you don't have a kid because you want your four-year-old to go out and get a job and provide for you. He says, and that's sort of what you guys are. I, 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 you know, in the same way, I didn't go plant a church at Corinth because I needed the money. <laughs> I did it because for you, because I love you guys. I'll very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. I will spend and be spent. This is, I'm, I'm giving everything. I'm pouring myself out completely. Again, we see Christian love here, holding nothing back, exp- exhausting himself for the good of others, giving of himself in every way. really like that verse. Even though it seems that the more I love you, the less you love me. <laughs> Feels like that sometimes, the more, the more we seem to pour out love, the more uh, sometimes people can turn against us. Paul was definitely feeling that way with the Corinthians. The more he loved them, the more he gave to them, the more they got suspicious, and they, they can't even see the, the very contradiction there. He says, now some of you will admit I wasn't a burden to you, but others just think that those people are fooled. Others think I was sneaky and I took advantage of you by trickery, and if you could see Paul's real motives... But how? Not only did I not take any money from you, but did any of the men I sent to you take advantage of you? When I urged Titus to visit you and I sent our other brother with him, did Titus take advantage of you? No, he did not. We have the same spirit. We walk in each other's steps doing things the same way. Paul says, neither myself nor anyone I've sent to you has been taken from you. A lot of Christian leaders are all about the money. Paul says, not me, not my guys. Jesus, he's reflecting the teaching of Jesus here. Jesus said, beware of false prophets. You'll know them by their fruits. Good, good fruit comes from good, good trees. Bad trees produce bad fruit. And Paul says, look at the fruit in our lives. Paul says, you want to examine me? Look at what I'm doing. That's a good key to the kind of Christian examination is look at reality. Look at what the person is actually doing. Instead of thinking you can see through and you can see their secret motives. It's ungodly judgment to judge someone's motives. Perhaps Paul says you think we're saying these things just to defend ourselves, like I'm worried about my reputation. No. We tell you this as Christ's servants, with God as our witness. Everything we do, dear friends, is to strengthen you. He says, I've been speaking here with an audience of one. The, my heavenly Father... And he is the one I'm ultimately trying to please here. And all my defense of myself and of my ministry and my teaching among you has simply been because I love you guys. And I'm worried that you're being led astray from simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And thus Paul says, after many, 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 many chapters of defending himself, and the defense rests. That is my defense of myself. And I've exonerated myself and I've shown you everything I can possibly show you between at least from now until I visit you. But Paul is planning a visit for them. He's planning to visit Corinth. And what he says now is, I'm going to visit you. And while we're on this subject of self-examination, you guys have gotten out your magnifying glass and you've really scrutinized me. Maybe we should put the magnifying glass down and look around. And now that I've examined myself, you need to examine yourselves. And he turns the lens back onto them. He's hoping that they can correct some of the problems that they've got by the time he gets there. That way, when he visits, it's not an unpleasant visit. Because there might be things Paul has to bring up in their lives that he really doesn't want to bring up. He says, I'd rather have a happy visit and not an unpleasant visit. He says, you know, I'm afraid when I come, I won't like what I find. And then you won't like me. (laughs) my response to what I see there. I'm afraid I'll find quarreling, jealousy, anger, selfishness, slander, gossip, 
arrogance and disorderly behavior. You know, what is he talking about? His big long list of problems. Well, he's already, you know, these are relational sins. These are sins that break down unity in the church at Corinth. And this is really what Paul is doing at this point. He's kind of recapping all the points he's made in his earlier correspondence with them. Problems he knows there are at Corinth. And so these are relational sins that break down unity in the group. And you can see his detailed treatment in each of these cases in 1 Corinthians 1 through 4, 6, 8, chapters 8 through 14, really, the, the church was rife with conflict, rife with division. They were taking each other to court, suing one another. And so Paul says, I hope we've taken care of those really blatant problems. You know, you've examined my life with a magnifying glass, but have you dealt with these blatant issues in your church? Again, he's reflecting the teaching of Jesus here. Jesus said, you know, it's, it's good that you want to help your friend with a problem in his life. But he says, you know, if you're going to reach in and you're going to take a speck of sawdust out of your friend's eyeball that's, that's lodged itself there, you better deal with the two by four that somehow has wedged itself into your own eye socket first. He says, you need to yank that thing out of there. Otherwise, you know, dealing with someone else's speck of sawdust, you touching somebody else's eyeball is a pretty delicate adventure. And he says, um, you don't want to do that with a big log sticking out of your own eye socket. And so Paul is saying, you know, part of the problem here that you guys can't see too clearly is because you still have a lot of your own issues and you're being kind of defensive and you're trying to justify yourself. And so if you're going to examine somebody else, you need to, um, you need to be humble enough to take the log out of your own eye first if you want to be helpful to someone else. It's good to help other people. But uh, Paul says, I hope that we've dealt with these issues, <laughs> these super obvious issues. I'm, you know, these are not the sort of things where you need to be like a private investigator to find these things in the Corinthian church. These things were right there. It, even the, the, the entire city could see these problems in their church. And Paul says, I'm afraid I'm going to find these there, but I'm not going to find these, right? These relational sins, this internal fighting. He says, yes, I'm afraid when I come again, God will humble me in your presence. Humble me by saying, you know, what he's saying is I really don't want to have to have a difficult conversation with you guys. So let's just deal with this now. I'll be grieved because many of you have not given up your old sins. You've not repented of your impurity, sexual morality, and eagerness for lustful pleasure. These were sexual sins that he talked about in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7. Again, we talked about these already. And he's like, you know, you know that false teacher who's accusing me? What about the fact that he's got several open lawsuits against the brothers and sisters in his home church? Have you thought about that as a problem? And you're siding with him? What about the fact that he goes to worship every week to a prostitute up at the old temple there of Aphrodite? What about that? And again, it's, it's like, he says, just open your eyes and look around. You don't... You don't need to be, need a microscope to find these clues. You don't need to like dust for fingerprints. This stuff is right there. And you guys are looking the other way. And if you look the other way, I can't look the other way, Paul says. I'm going to have to talk about this. So you need to examine yourselves. Examine yourselves as, as a church and call all these problems what they are. These problems that he's been talking about throughout our whole study of 1 Corinthians and some, some into 2 Corinthians as well. And he says, this is the third time I'm coming to visit you, just as the scriptures say, the facts of every case must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Probably here he's referring to his discussion that we studied in 1 Corinthians 5, where he says that there is serious sin in the church. There's a process that Jesus outlined where Jesus quotes this verse and says that needs to be followed. And Paul's saying that's, that's what we have to do. Hopefully we don't, but we would. And he said, I already warned those who'd been sinning when I was there on my second visit. Now, again, I warn them, just as I did before, that next time I will not spare them. All right, this sounds really menacing, like Paul is some executioner. All he's saying is, um, I haven't really gone after this stuff in your group. And I've even been criticized, Paul says, that I'll have these, I'll, I'll have these letters that I send you, and then I'll show up and I'm nice to you. And people are like, oh, see, Paul... He's full of, you know what, he's a big talker, but then uh, he's all bark and no bite. And he's like, it's not because I can't actually do this in person. I just really don't want to because I don't like to. And then, um, 
I, this visit though, this stuff's been going on for a couple of years. I, I'm going to have to, we're going to have to deal with it when I show up. So why don't you just deal with it before I do so we can have a happy time together over the holidays <laughs> when I visit you. That's really what he's saying. I, I, I can't keep looking the other way on this stuff. I'll give you all the proof you want that Christ speaks through me. And he gives this contrast between weak and strong. Christ is not weak when he deals with you. He's powerful among you. Although he was crucified in weakness, he now lives by the power of God. And we too are weak, just as Christ was. But when we deal with you, we'll be alive with him and we'll have God's power. Remember our discussion last time in 2 Corinthians 12 where he talks about when I'm weak, then I'm strong, and I'll delight in my weaknesses. He's referring back to this discussion in 2 Corinthians 12, and he's talking about how you know, worldly leadership is brash and controlling and arrogant. And Paul says spiritual leadership is Christ-like leadership. He's the, he is the servant of all. He's gentle. He's not weak. He's tough. You read about Jesus. He's not, he's not weak. But he is gentle, and he's empathetic, and he was humble. And Paul says, that's what I'll do. I'll be like Jesus among you. I'll be gentle, humble, spiritual, but um, not a weakling. And we are going to deal with this because this has just gone on too long, and it's doing too much damage. And then he says this. We're going to spend a while in these verses. He says, examine yourself to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. Surely you know Jesus Christ is among you if you have not. If not, you've failed the test of genuine faith. And as you test yourselves, I hope you'll recognize we've not failed the test of apostolic authority. You can start to see some parallels here between verse 5 and 6. In both verses, he says, test yourselves. In both verses, he talks about failing the test. And um, he says it in the negative. He says, you know, you guys haven't failed the test, and we haven't failed the test. Test yourselves, test yourselves. What is he talking about here? Well, this verse gets used a lot of different ways, but what Paul is saying is this, and let me just show you his flow of thought. He says, you guys are Christians, right? Christ is among you. How'd you become Christians? Oh, yeah, that's right. It was through me. It was through my work with you. And therefore, if you guys are real, legit Christians, then I must be a real, legit apostle. But on the other hand, he says... If I'm not a real apostle, then what does that say about you guys? How could you become real Christians if I'm not a real apostle? How can you be real Christians if I'm not a real apostle? And so what he's saying is, by condemning me, aren't you sort of saying that you're not Christians? Because you came to Christ under my teaching, and I discipled you guys and your leaders and planted this church. And so there's sort of, he's sort of applying this test. This is sort of another proof of his own. The self-examination is sort of supposed to lead to some of the ex, you know, exoneration of himself and the, the charges against him. But this, this charge, to, this call to examine yourselves, if you read some of the literature on this, you know, introspection, you know, where you just take this deep look within yourself. That's an important concept in a lot of religions, including some versions of Christianity. In fact, sometimes you read Christians arguing that taking a deep look inside of your heart and finding all of the sin there and rooting it out and confessing it all and things like that, that we need to spend a lot of time looking deep within our hearts. Um, this verse is often one of the main proof texts used for that that we need to really deeply examine ourselves and scrutinize ourselves. And um, <clears throat> I'd like to think about this a little bit. What does the Bible teach about introspection? I think this is a relevant issue for many of us. Um, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about ourselves, looking in on ourselves, what's good, what's bad about that, when does it go too far, when does it not go far enough? I'd like to just read some different authors as they talk about introspection, and we'll see what they have to say. And uh, see if we can learn anything from these guys. i got about four authors, I think, here. Dr. Larry Crabb, well-respected Christian author, psychologist. He's, been in, he's spoken here at Xenos many times at our Summer Institute and other times. We've also gone to conferences where he speaks. He says, exploring deeply what goes on inside of us can be an intriguing adventure, but it can also be frightening. He says in his book, Understanding People. It's a book 
It's sort of a book about counseling. It's his philosophy on counseling. Counselors, this is what counselors do, right? They help us understand what's going on inside of ourselves. But he says it can be frightening. It's immeasurably more comfortable to probe within ourselves only far enough to solve immediate problems and to restore a pleasant sense of well-being. Why is a deep inward look not a natural part of all Christian growth? Why is it avoided and sometimes condemned as self-centeredness? I think the reason is simply fear. We fear the unknown. We fear losing control. We fear spoiling a comfortable existence. It's sort of blissful denial. We fear facing unpleasant truths about ourselves. We fear confusion that robs us of certainty in our daily decisions. I'm convinced that much of what we admire as spiritual maturity is a fragile adjustment to life built squarely on the foundation of denial, Crabbe says. And when I speak of denial, I'm concerned with the idea that maturity comes not from not thinking too deeply about oneself. Is that our idea of maturity? We just, just look the other way when we see problems deep down within our souls? Reflection about oneself is regarded as an unhealthy introspective focus on self rather than on Christ and is therefore unbiblical. But the Bible expressly states God has built us with the ability to explore our deepest parts. So Crabbe seems pretty pro-introspection here. He quotes Proverbs, The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the innermost parts of his being. Okay, that's pretty interesting. What's strange about Proverbs, though, is um, it's a pretty old book, and also there's no context. And a lot of our interpretation and even translation is rooted in context. They're short, pithy sayings. Another way to take this is like the NLT, which looks a little different. The Lord's light penetrates the human spirit, exposing every hidden motive. So in one case, my spirit is God's flashlight shining into the innermost parts of my soul. In another case... God shines his flashlight into my spirit and exposes what's there as he sees fit. Well, in one case, I'm the one doing the exploring. In the other case, I submit myself to an examination from the good doctor, the great physician, the Lord. In fact, there, there's really not that many good verses. Really, there's, not, there's no good verses that that you see being quoted about how I need to go and I need to deeply probe into every nook and cranny of my evil, sinful self. He says, although our hearts are deceitful, so as to become unknowable, God sees everything clearly. He grants whatever knowledge we should have through his word, his spirit, and his people. Okay. So some of these guys, it looks like they're going way into introspection like crab. But then if you read a little further, you actually see he does qualify what he's talking about here. He says, God is the one who sees things clearly. And he, he quotes three verses here. Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's the biblical perspective on the human soul. Is deep down, we got big problems and we don't even understand how messed up we are. It's because we are fallen beings. We've turned aside from God and we're, we're broken. Hebrews 4 says the spirit of the word of the Lord is living and active and it probes down in, it cuts right down in and exposes the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So again, that's not something that I'm supposed to go in and I'm supposed to expose the thoughts and intentions of my heart any more than I could do surgery on myself. No, I open myself up to the spirit of, of God and he's the one who uses his word to move in there and to expose the things that I need to see. Hebrews 3.13 talks about encouraging one another as long as it's still, still today so you won't be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So there it talks about the need for other people, for me to listen to other people if they're bringing stuff up in my life that I'm blind to. We all have many blind spots. If you don't, if you don't realize that, then you must not be very far along in your maturity if you can't admit you got blind spots. And we need others to expose those blind spots inappropriate. I think there's definitely such a thing as too much of this. Too much too soon. God doesn't expose all our blind spots at once. Otherwise, we would drop dead from terror just from seeing ourselves the way we really are here now. It would be so depressing. No, he, he's the one. He's got us on a training regimen here. 
And he's the one that leads us along and shows us things and leads us into the next realizations as we're fit to handle it. So Crabb says, therefore, we can expect to become aware of hidden issues which are blocking our growth if we vulnerably and humbly present ourselves before God with an attitude of, search me. Psalm 139. Psalmist cries out, search me, O God. Show me if there's any wrong way within me. Lead me in the way everlasting. And so this is not, I'm responsible to go in and take inventory and to find all the hidden things. No, I, I can't do that. I, I take myself before the Lord and I open myself up to Him. Yes, that's one of the great differences with Christianity, is with religion, I am responsible to be a good person. With Christianity, I say, I can't be that person. And I invite another being to come and live inside of me. And life completely changes when another being comes and starts living inside of you. And that being, God's Holy Spirit, He is the one who will search us out and who will show us the things we need to see when we need to see them. Crabb says, as a caution against such abuses of looking inward, we must remember the essence of spirituality is other-centeredness, focused on others, not me. A worshipful love for God, a love for others that motivates sacrificial care for them. Yeah, the problem is I love myself and I think about myself too much. And it's not, a, it's not advanced spirituality to think about myself more. Our humility is not where you think less of yourself, it's where you think of yourself less. Godly self-examination as an outward and forward look. Yes. Hmm, crab. What about Stanford? The green letters. His, his chapter 10 in the green letters is called self. Seems like it could be setting up for self-focus. He even says, you know, Plato with his know thyself was more right than he knew. Yes, this is Plato or Socrates, one of those guys it's attributed to. Inscribed on the gates at Delphi, the oracle. Embraced then later by Hobbes and Emerson and many other secular thinkers. Know thyself is such a virtue. And he says he was partly right. He was only half right. The Apostle Paul had it right, though. He said, not I, but Christ. That was right. So there's a certain amount of self-awareness that we're going to need to have as a Christian. But that self-awareness grows as we look at Jesus. For one to get beyond just knowing about the Lord Jesus, one must first come to know oneself. Yes, there's a certain self-awareness that I will gain if I'm going to really know Jesus in a personal way. But introspection is not involved here. The Holy Spirit uses experiential revelation. First, the believer learns not I and then, but Christ. And so there's like this, this process where God's Spirit is like a flashlight. He is the light. And He will show us things. He will open our eyes. Remember we talked about this back in 1 Corinthians 2? How the Holy Spirit is the one that illuminates. He is the one who gives us insight into God's Word, for example. And it's like we'll be going along and He'll just go click and He'll shine the light on something. And you're like, whoa, what is that? And you see something you didn't see before. And then He'll give you some time and, and you're like, Thank you, God, that you love me and that you forgive me in spite of that thing that was there. And th Thank you, God. One of the greatest things is you see how all the people in your life, a lot of them saw it anyway, <laughs> and they were putting up with it, and they love you, and you're like, man, and I had such arrogant thoughts toward them. And then all of a sudden, you start feeling, you start feeling pretty good, and then the Holy Spirit's like, click, and you're like, oh, I thought I was perfect. And slowly, there's this process of experiential revelation where you, you sort of have to learn a lot of these things the hard way through suffering, through hurting people. And you learn, you learn how much you need Christ. You learn not to trust yourself too much. You learn that you have blind spots and you come to trust. I probably got blind spots I don't know about. And you learn, not I, but Christ, experientially. What about Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British pastor, preacher? He was also a medical doctor. Jones says, 
I suggest we cross the line from self-examination to introspection when, in a sense, we do nothing but examine ourselves. He says a little self-examination is okay, but introspection, that's where we do nothing but examine ourselves. And when such self-examination becomes the main and chief end of our life, we're meant to examine ourselves periodically, but if we're always doing it, always, as it were, putting our soul on a plate and dissecting it, that is introspection. And if we're always talking to people about ourselves and our problems and our troubles, and if we're forever going to them with that kind of frown upon our face saying, I'm in great difficulty, it probably means we're all the time centered upon ourselves. That is introspection. And that, in turn, leads to the condition known as morbidity. Yes, an attitude quality marked by excessive gloom or a disease state or symptom. It will lead our mind into that place and can even, um, it can create problems that, you, that weren't even there before. The more you focus on yourself, it's like drinking some poison that makes you sicker and sicker in your spiritual life. Charles Spurgeon, he says, introspection, like retrospection, is a useful thing in measure. So a little bit, you know, like retrospection, that's where I reflect on the past Introspection is where I sort of take a look at myself, but it can readily be overdone, and then it breeds morbid emotions. There's that word again. And it creates despair. It's actually depressing. The the clearer you see yourself before you're ready for it, the more depressing it is. Some are always looking into their own feelings. A healthy man hardly knows whether he has a stomach or a liver. It's your sickly man who grows more sickly by the study of his inward complaints. Too many wound themselves by studying themselves. Oh, man. Too many wound themselves by studying themselves. I wonder if some of us have this problem. I mean, even our culture mocks hypochondriacs, right? The internet is full of memes like these. I don't always go on WebMD. But when I do, I learn I'm going to die soon. (laughs) What about this one? My wife keeps calling me a hypochondriac. It's like she doesn't even care that I sprained my uterus. (laughs) All right. Um, We see things that aren't there. We create problems. We wound ourselves by studying ourselves in too much detail. Spurgeon says every morning they think of what they should feel. And all day long they dwell upon how the, what they're not feeling. And at night they make diligent search for what they may have been feeling. He gives the example of a shop owner who's so worried that he's not making money, he just closes the shop and just focuses on the accounting books all day long. He says that is not a good way to turn a profit. Shutting down the shop and focusing on how we're losing money. You may look a long while into an empty pocket before you find a coin. And you may look a long time into fallen nature before you find comfort. Man might as well try to find burning coals under the ice as to find anything good in our poor human nature. When you look within, it should be to see with grief what the filthiness is. But to get rid of that filthiness, you must look beyond yourself. I remember D.L. Moody saying, a looking glass was a great thing to show you the spots on your face, but you can't wash your face with a looking glass. You can't just wet that mirror and rub your face with it and think that that's going to change your image. You want something very different when you would make your face clean. Forget yourself, he says, and think only of Christ. Yes, this is spiritual growth. There's a a blessed self-forgetfulness, and you'll find you're a lot happier when you're focused more on Christ and on what he says about you and less on every single whim, feeling, action, thought, and motive that you think you see down in there, which may not even really be there. It gets so confusing. I remember just as, as, a, as a young Christian, just, you know, I would sit down to spend time with God and I was taught that you had to confess every sin to get forgiven for it. Like we could somehow possibly even know what all of our sins are, even one-tenth of them, even one-hundredth of them. And I would, I would start to just list these sins and I would get so depressed. 
And then I would feel terrible about myself because then I thought I wasn't forgiven and I would wonder what God thought about me and I would end up probably just getting into, into more sin. Did not make you want to spend time with God. No, forget about yourself. Look to Christ. That's where you need to look. Watch my knee. He says, is there any point of controversy between you and God? So Nee says, there is, some, there is legitimately, sometimes God will point out there's issues between you and him. And we need, to, we need to let him point those out. I refer, of course, to real, known issues, not some vague issue. If there's nothing special, there's no need for you to search around to find something. The Lord himself will always discover it. When he wants to bring to light something you're overlooking, he'll always point his finger there and you'll know it. He's not trying to be sneaky. He's not trying to hide things from you that he wants you to know. There's no need for you to turn your eyes within and by checking up and analyzing every feeling to dig it out. Just praise him. It's the Lord's business, not yours, to shine into your heart and to show you when you're astray from him. And so just a few pointers here on this I thought would be useful. One is just to realize Christianity is not a shallow life or an unaware life. There's a depth you know, Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free in John 8, 32. And so there's a depth to it, and we should not be running away from reality and denial. We can face reality clearly because we're under grace, and we know that God is sovereign, and we know that he's in control. What, what there is, is there's a growth in our focus on Christ and other people. That's where our focus is, and then there's an awareness of self. If you think about driving a car... You know, if, when you're driving a car, you want your eyes out ahead on the road in front of you. If you're looking down at the, at the lines and on the side of the road, you'll find yourself swerving in that direction. If you're messing around too much with what's going on inside the car, you're going to run into problems out on the road there. No, there needs to be an awareness of the sides of the road. There needs to be an awareness of what's happening inside of the car. But my focus needs to be out there, and it's sort of a peripheral awareness of what's going on in here. And sometimes certain things will need your attention. You have to pay attention to those, and you want to get your eyes back out. Stopping to listen to the one who knows best. You know, this is why if there's something wrong with me, I go to a doctor, and I let the doctor figure it out. I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to diagnose myself. Um, That's us going before the Lord and letting God point things out. Or a house inspector. You know, I had an issue several years ago where... When I bought my house, I saw some cracks start to show up in one of the walls, and I started getting really worried about my foundation. And I brought a foundation guy out, and he inspected the house, and he's like, you're fine. Just uh, do this, this, and this, and it'll be fine. So I did what he recommended, and I still was feeling worried about it. I brought another foundation guy out, and he's like, he studied it. He was an engineer. He's like, you're fine. I still was feeling worried about it. I saw these cracks. And so I brought another guy out. And he's like, man, your house is fine. He started walking around my, my, my neighbor, and he's like, that guy's house, that foundation's messed up right there. See the difference between yours and his? And he started pointing things out. He knew what he was talking about. Sometimes it's that way. We're like, we're just looking at all the problems, and there's things God, God knows what he's doing. We live in a fallen world. Let him point the things out. And then, you know, be willing to act on it when he gives us suggestions, when he, when he points things out to us. So for me, I, I think um, I do, I know there are certain things that happen when I, um, I'll kind of just stop and I'll take time for the, to, to spend time with God and I'll, I'll spend time in prayer. I try to do that every day. I try to spend time reading his word. I try to ask him, God, speak to me through your word. This is not an intellectual exercise. I want, I want to hear from you here. I know enough to listen to other people who I trust when they're pointing things out in my life. I'll even journal periodically. It's not every day. It's, I get to it maybe once a week or so. But I'll just sort of write out what's happening in my life because a lot happens in my life. And if I don't stop and process it, if I don't stop and think about it, then things just pass me right by and I, I kind of get overwhelmed with things. It sort of helps me sort it out in this time with God. And so there's a time to stop and listen to the one who knows best, see if he's got anything to point out, and then we get our focus where it needs to be. So I think one question, what's your tendency? Are you too introspective or do you never, ever ask God to search your heart? That would be one question. Are you acting on the steps God has already given you? A lot of our problems are pretty basic. It's like we're not, you know, you go to a doctor and he's like, well, have you been eating? And you're like, no. And he's like, well, you need to eat food. 
It's been a week since you've eaten. A lot of our spiritual problems is we're not, we're not partaking of the word of God. We're not eating. My wife is a counselor, and you'd be surprised how many of her counseling cases, she's, she's a Christian counselor. She's like, well, we need to figure out a way that you can get time in the word, and we need to ha- figure out how to benefit from that. What effect is your introspection having on your motivation? Is it making you more motivated for God, or is it making you despair and depressed? And have you ever opened the door to Christ in the first place? Jesus says, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and we'll share a meal together as friends. There needs to be a a point in your life where you invite Christ into your life. That's part of what Paul is asking the Corinthians here. He's saying, are you guys... Are you guys really Christians? I think he sort of wondered that with some of them. Not with the the, the group as a whole, but with some of them. And uh, I've known people. In fact, I myself had this experience growing up in the church. And I I thought I was a Christian. I was not actually a a Christian. I never personally received Christ until my senior year in high school. And, And I think that maybe some of us have had this experience as well. And in fact, I've asked... um, one of our own here, Jeff Tyndall, to come up and share about his experience with that in his life. So where's Jeff at? All right, come on up. Let's give him a big hand. Hello? Am I on? All right. Uh, yeah, when I think of this passage here, uh, specifically in 2 Cor 13 and 5, when I'm talking about testing yourself, I really think a lot about how I came into a personal relationship with God. The reason for this is, I grew up in this church. My family is in this church. Um, my sister is actually a missionary now, uh, and I always viewed them really into this God thing. Uh, I was never one of those people that just naturally really liked trying to understand who God was, and you know, I kind of chalked that up to, well, it's just different interests. Kind of thought to myself, you know, that's kind of my sister's thing. Uh, I'm going to go find my own thing. So. I searched for my identity, my, my excitement, so I, I reached for things like sports, and I have kind of an entrepreneurial mind, so I, I looked to things like business and how to make money and do all these things, and I got pretty good at these things uh, until it all came to a point, probably the end of my senior year in high school, when uh, I enjoyed those things, but I just it didn't scratch the itch like it used to. Um, and that was uh, pretty discouraging for me because I had spent so much time doing these things uh, only to find that to be kind of a closed door to the excitement that I was trying to find in my life. Uh, so having not ever really invested in the things of God and, and what the whole God thing was about, I, I decided to check it out. My uh, sister's now husband um, had kind of sought me out and was like, hey, why don't you check this out? So I agreed to go. Uh, semi-begrudgingly, a little skeptical, but I went, and uh, I found that I had a really good time, and I liked uh, the relational aspect of it. I wasn't really too hot on the idea of the spiritual aspect of it, uh, but nonetheless, I continued to go, and, uh, you know, the romance of the excitement kind of continued. I'm a guy that loves to be around things that are fun, so uh, everything just seemed really exciting, so I continued to go to the point where I actually moved into a house uh, full of guys that uh, wanted to follow God here in this church. And uh, it was great because I could move out of my parents' house. It was awesome. Um, had some freedom that I had never had before. And uh, after a few months, some of that romance had uh, faded. And uh, I no longer really had that same excitement that I once did right when I moved into the house. Um, and it wasn't too, too long after I moved into the house that I really noticed a huge gap between me and the other guys that lived in that house. I started kind of looking at the other guys that were in there and was like, man, you know, these guys read on Saturday for fun. And they're like praying together and sharing intimate things about their lives. And I'm like, this is really, man, this is so bizarre. So I was like, man, maybe I should try to do something like that. So I would try praying. I'd try reading um, my, the guy who was mentoring me, uh, who would read with me, we'd read stuff together weekly. And after we'd be done, he's like, man, like, does anything stand out to you? And I'm like, I have no idea what we just read. So I'd like flip a few pages back and be like, oh yeah, that point's pretty cool right there. But the idea was that I just couldn't retain this information and I struggled to understand why. So uh, after a certain period of time, I was just kind of like, man, I really don't know what else to do. Maybe I'll try bringing some people out and that would be fun. And maybe that'll get me excited. And I found that it was just continuously something that uh, just didn't work. Um, So probably six to eight months later, I finally decided, man, I've given this a shot. 
um, you know, I got to check this off and say, hey, I, I tried it, but it just didn't work out. Uh, I moved out of uh, that house because I had convinced myself that I really gave this a shot. And uh, one of my roommates had convinced me to go on this trip uh, that we had taken as a group every year to the beach. And he's like, you've already paid. You should go anyways. And I said, okay. Uh, So I went and uh, I had heard this daily devotional thing we did. We had read something and it was... uh, um, it was on intimacy with God. And I started to realize as I was going through this, I'm like, man, there's just this huge disconnect here. Why is it that I can memorize every lyric to every song that I listen to that I know the most worthless sports stats that like eight people actually care about? But I couldn't tell you like one verse that I learned or memorized from, you know, kid. When kids that are in Sunday school, you know, they, they learn these when they're four years old. I can't remember these. These things don't come to my, just, I can't recall them. Um, so I went and sat on the back porch feeling real discouraged. I'm kind of looking out of the, over the ocean. I remember it exactly. And I'm sitting in this rocking chair. Uh, and this guy comes out and he sits down next to me. And it's kind of awkward. Uh, he's older than me. And I didn't really talk to him that much. And uh, he led our group at the time. And he was like, man, you know, I've been thinking about you. And I was like, yeah. And he said, uh, you know, uh, I wonder if you're not even a believer. And uh, (laughs) I had the similar response. Uh, I was so shocked. And I wish I could say we had this, like, real intense conversation after, but he just got up and left. Um, (laughs) And I just remember sitting there, and I'm just like, first, I'm shocked, but I think I was even more offended. That somebody would question the sal- like my salvation. I mean, that's a pretty serious thing, uh, and I think my response is probably normal. Uh, and unfortunately, I didn't have a very mature response to it. You know, I went home, uh, not right then, but after the end of the trip, and uh, I I was gone, moved out of the house, kind of isolated myself, and went to moved in somewhere else. And it eventually decided that uh, you know I'm just not even going to think about this anymore. Until I was on a road trip uh, with my dad a few months later, had to be five or six months later, and I started talking to him about this conversation. He told me, um, or he asked, you know, is there any, any kind of validity, do you think, to that? I said, no, absolutely not. There can't be. And he just said, you know, just, just think about it. So I started thinking a little bit more about it, and, uh, you know, I had been... Uh, that Matthew 7 verse about knowing a tree by its fruit had, came in, had come into my head because it had been said to me several times from some guys... Uh, this idea that, you know, you've been trying all of these things, but nothing seems to happen when you do it. There's no force behind this. There's nothing to show for the work that you're putting into this. Uh, that seems odd. And I thought more and more about it. And it was that night that I actually placed my faith in Christ at a Motel 6 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, and man, I tell you what, I was absolutely sure that that was, that was it. Uh, that was the time that I came into a relationship with Christ because my life absolutely changed. Um, and you know, you hear these things all the time. Oh, I mean, it's just like this huge weight off my shoulders. I don't know if I could say that, but I think there was just this instant peace that I had. There was a a calm that I had. Um, and what's even more amazing was that I began to try to read some stuff, uh, and started memorizing scriptures, started being able to retain the stuff I was reading. And I mean, no joke, it was super bizarre. It was very bizarre that I could actually keep this stuff in mind. Um, and I wish I could say I just turned right around and had the humility and started uh, you know, investing back into this. But it took me some time because I wanted time to know that this was the right thing. Uh, and man, I, I am so glad I made that decision. It was incredible. And uh, you know, I, I always tell people, if you really can't remember the day that you put your faith in Christ, make sure it's today. Uh, because you don't want to just be confident that you know Christ. You want to be sure. Uh, and I'm glad that I'm sure. So that's my story. Am I on here? Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing how much better you do spiritually when you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. It's the difference between religion and a relationship with God. Well, we might as well read the last couple verses in this book. We've come so far. And Paul says, we pray for your maturity. We pray to God that you will not do what's wrong by refusing our correction. Hope we don't need to demonstrate our authority when we arrive. Do the right thing before we come, even if it makes it look like we failed to demonstrate our authority. I'd love for these to be empty 
warnings, and we just have a good old time when I get there. We can't oppose the truth. We must always stand for the truth. And we're glad to seem weak if it helps show that you're actually strong. We'll pray. We pray that you will become mature, Paul says. We pray for your maturity. I'm writing this to you before I come, hoping I won't need to deal severely with you when I do come, for I want to use the authority the Lord's given me to strengthen you, not to tear you down. Dear brothers and sisters, I close my letter with these last words. Be joyful. Grow to maturity, yes. Joy and gratitude are such an essential piece of Christian maturity. Encourage each other. Live in harmony and peace. We see the one another's coming out here, encouraging one another. Harmony, peace with one another. And then the God of love and peace will be with you. You'll really experience these things from God if you live according to his way of life. Greet each other with a sacred kiss. That was like normal back then, the way they showed affection. It would be sort of weird today. <laughs> but there's ways we can show affection to one another um, that falls short of the holy kiss. We've got to interpret it for our day and age, okay? Um, all of God's people here send you their greetings. And he finishes with the Trinity. He says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And then we've got the book of 2 Corinthians. We made it. Okay, let's pray. Lord, to be fully known at first sounds like a pretty scary proposition, but when you tell us that you fully know us and you fully love us and fully accept us, that actually sounds pretty exciting. Thank you that you're not asking us to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps um, but that you are asking us to invite you in, to listen to you, to follow your lead, and that you want to lead us into all truth, that you want to lead us into a, the fullest grasp of reality that we can get here in this life, and then you usher us into a new world and a new reality that's not fallen. And uh, I, I'm just so thankful that um, you love us. Thankful for Jeff's testimony there, Lord, and I can relate to a lot of what he was saying there, that you pursued me and brought me to a relationship with you, um, and uh, I am eternally grateful for that. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.